This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. Hey everyone, I'm Carrie, an 8-wing 7 one to one When I was younger, I remember coming home from school, I was in kindergarten, and my mom pulled out a paper out of my backpack, and I had one thing marked wrong on there. My mom said, what happened here? And I said, my teacher erased my original answer, which was correct, and then wrote in another answer and marked it wrong. And my mom said, you know, you can be wrong, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, but I'm not wrong. I have explored what I was like as a kid very often because my mom would always tell me how very difficult I was. And so she tried disciplining me. And either one of my parents were leading in my home, so I started leading. Uh, My mom says at age four, I was going to take care of myself. I was going to take care of my sister. Nobody could tell me what to do. And she had no idea how to raise me. I've always just been this really intense person, always on the go. When I was in about fourth or fifth grade, I made a club and there were only two requirements to be members of this club. And the first one was that you could not own any Cabbage Patch Kid dolls because I thought they were hideous. And the second thing was, since it was kind of a tomboy girls club, you could not wear dresses or skirts to school. What was I like as a child? I was the youngest in my family and I was the protector of everyone, even my older brother. I remember one time in particular where he got in a fight with a neighbor kid and the kid was picking on him and I jumped in and pushed the kid to the ground and told him to stay away from my brother. So definitely as a child and even now, don't mess with the people I love. (laughs) I guess that's the bottom line. All of the Enneagram experts that you would be familiar with have an awful lot to say about eights as children, but as of yet I have not read anything from an eight themselves. And so, of course, we are going to go ahead and pick apart some of those quotes and we'll either agree or disagree. As uh, we like to say, it takes an eight to know an eight. We will do our best to see if these quotes are a good fit for who we think we were as little kids and what we think really did cause that initial wounding that shaped our personality. Okay, so the authors we read and whatnot, they have a lot to say about childhood wounds. A common thing that I hear that I agree with is that wounding doesn't mean that your parents intentionally did you harm. Oh, man, I hope not, because otherwise we're in big trouble. Yeah, for sure. So the gist of it is that your wounding happens because life is like that. And we're bound to be hurt. And each type is predisposed to being hurt in certain ways. And we're not parenting our own number. So how are we supposed to be natural and meet the needs? Like... I can't meet the need of somebody that I don't understand. That's and a I super think, good point. I think that's part of this Enneagram journey too, right? As, as a parent, like it's not just self-growth, but it's how can I be a better mom all the time? Absolutely, yeah. So with the eight wound in particular, we're just going to read what a whole bunch of authors and people we read have said about it. And we'll talk about, as usual, the parts that we think aren't quite a fit or that could use a little language tweaking. And we'll talk about the ways that that showed up in our childhood. The most common thing you hear about eights childhood wounding is that eights often say they were abused or neglected. Mm -hmm. In my first three years, that was very much probably the case was the spotty connections with my mom. They do say most 
AIDS have either been abused or neglected. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that stands true for everybody. Yeah. You know, we were thinking, oh, that's not true. But now I'm thinking, hmm, it, you know, the abuse part is different, but is neglect a type of abuse? Probably. Mm-hmm. I've been reading the biography that Trump's niece wrote about him as a kid. And his dad was very emotionally abusive in just the wrong way for an eight. So his dad used mockery and public shaming and a belittlement to control Trump when he was a kid. And I remember just really feeling it when I read it because that couldn't be a more powerful tool to control me, that's for sure. It would shut me down so fast. And so Trump is an example of what happens when the abuse is perfectly tailored to your type's worst fear. That's what creates the biggest monsters in our type. So when I was reading the abuse that that his dad meted out to him, in my head, I was saying, I would rather be hit. Hmm. I would much rather be hit than to be made to feel small. So it's just no wonder that we have the man that we have today because he feels almost nothing, right? He mm-hmm. Just to survive, he feels zero. And that's what you get, right? Going back to that, I think it's a really interesting thought actually about how we all need our needs met differently. But you're right, like we can be destroyed differently. We have to be destroyed differently. I mean, as eights, I bet you we look all over the place and say, why are you worried about that? Or why are why is that upsetting you? Or why did that hurt you? Right? But those those other numbers can be brought down by things that we don't even consider. We each have our own Achilles heel, our own kryptonite. Yeah, Roar talks about how eights often report being repressed or pushed around. Now that I can relate to more, given the church history that I have. So we don't need to say a whole lot more about that. But that's where it shows up for me. It wouldn't be like an overt kind of abuse. But the repression really, really walled me up. Palmer says, where there was no physical abuse in the family, eights report that they were respected for being strong and rejected when they looked weak. I would say that resonates with my childhood. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that the people around me, I I know they did. I mean, my dad was so proud of me as a kid and my strength and my courage. And I'm sure I was built up on that. Yeah, Roar adds parents rewarded strength. They'd say, hit back. So I have a few stories about that. I was bullied in grade seven because I dated I dated a girl's ex-boyfriend and she was this feisty little Cambodian chick and she was just so angry <laughs> that, that I dated her ex-boyfriend. She used to like run around with a mob of girls threatening to beat me up. Anyway, my mom started saying, hey, so, you know, you have baseball practice after school. Just carry your bat with you. Just go ahead. Just carry your bat with you. And you know what? Do what you need to do. That's such an eight thing. Yeah. Don't start anything, but you know what you need to do. Yeah. If, you know, push comes to shove, you're good to go, girl. You do what you have to do. And then there's this story my dad fixated on in childhood, which was there used to be two boys that would follow me home from school. And they were just like pests, like mosquitoes, honestly. They didn't mean any harm. I think they actually thought I was cute and they were trying to flirt, but they drove me nuts. And one day I took one and I took the other and I threw them onto the road. And he thought that was the best. He told that story at every occasion. Knew you could fight for yourself. Yeah. But it goes to show though, that um, of course their delight in my toughness couldn't have been more clear. Right. (laughs) They thought it was pretty great. And so it became my pride to be tough. Yeah. So yeah, I was part of a church community that wanted me to repress that. And then my home life was all about that being awesome. (laughs) 
So it's really no wonder. That's a really hard childhood. Yeah, it's because you're pretty in two tricky. different places at the same time yeah. at all times. Yeah, which made me two different people in mm. two different settings, and eights hate a feeling of being divided. Right? We want integrity of self, and so it was pretty rough. Another aspect of wounding comes from your place within your family system. So that would include siblings and everything and your relationship with your mom and dad, obviously. Uh, the theory is that eights learned that they could find their place in the family system by taking on complementary roles to the nurturing role, often a patriarchal strong role, as if we felt that if we lost this role in the family, we'd be rejected or something. If eights had a relatively nurturing childhood, they'd probably take on a strong protective role. I think it must be easier to be an eight as the oldest child in a family. I totally think so. So I had a few of you get in touch and say you had nine wings and you think the nine wing came from being in the middle. Oh, that's so interesting. I think that that would make sense though. No, I happen to just know four eights and we all happen to be the oldest. And that's not my belief. Like my belief is you're actually born, but it is pretty interesting. God's not just throwing at the oldest exactly. kid. You can all be my eights. No, for sure. <laughs> Children, but it would be but... interesting to poll eights to see if the more nine wings are usually not the oldest child. Mm -hmm. Or in situations where they yeah, really feel pulled to hold together warring parties or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. This is where another concept that was really painful to learn about cropped up in The Place We Find Ourselves, that podcast. Um, and it's called triangulation. So this is the definition for that. Triangulation is the use of a third person to strengthen the control a person has over someone else. So it's about building alliances within your family. And this was really uncomfortable to learn about because as I was hearing about it, I instantly knew this was me. And it was a case that was my parents not intentionally trying to cause me harm, but each of them made me their go-to person. My dad came to me when he was hurt over my mom. And remember, my dad was a two and my mom was an eight. And he would talk me through all of his hurts at an age that just was not, it's not, not you know, healthy it's for not, me to hear It's about. not at an age. It's just never appropriate. No. Yeah. And the, okay. So I've had to edit that as well because I've also told myself that um, in my older years, well, it was okay then because then I was a peer, but it still felt After a lot of counseling, I know that it is not. Yeah, not comfortable. And so I became the person that uh, he came to to feel seen and heard and whatnot. And I would tell him off too, for sure. I mean, I would make him own his stuff, but it still shouldn't have been my job. And I remember thinking, man, I wish he had good friends to talk to. Like, I wish it wasn't me. And then conversely, my mom would also then come to me and I was her best friend. I really, truly was her best friend. And she never really opened up. To, she was a very guarded eight. She'd been quite hurt, I think, abused even in childhood. And um, so I was, and she often spoke about how similar we were. And so she just got me and I got her. And she would tell me things I had no business knowing, no business knowing. There was this uncomfortable moment where you feel like this shouldn't be me who's hearing this, but you also feel like you're honored for being the one she chose to talk to. Right. Right. And so I like rose to the task and made sure that I didn't show any horror or discomfort. I acted very strong and tough as she was talking me through these things and would say all the right things and be a strong presence for her. And meanwhile, it stole my innocence. It made me grow up way too fast and 
meant that we were friends instead of a mom and a kid. Growing up now, I think being in our 30s, the 30s have been really hard because these are the things we're... We're realizing. We're realizing, right? And it, it changes a lot of your memories to things that were really pleasant. And for you, like having a great relationship with your mom, and then you sort of have to unpack a little bit of the, oh, maybe maybe these things shouldn't have happened. And then you get through that and you get to the part where like you can forgive and, and you can recognize their unhealth and get past, right? But it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a duct tape band-aid where you slowly <laughs> rip it off one hair at a time. It's so painful. I remember um, after my parents had split up, I mean, of course it was me who, I wasn't in a triangular thing. My my dad didn't really talk to me about stuff, but, and nor did my mom. But when my mom and dad split, I knew my mom was too weak to take care of herself. And so I took it on. I went and got a credit check for her. I went and got her, you know, banking figured out and made sure she wasn't going to lose her house. I helped her get a mortgage on the house. Like I was 30 years old and I, I did all of it. And I remember going to counseling and the uh, therapist saying to me, like drawing it on the board, you know, where they draw on their wipe off boards or whatever. And she said, here's your parents up here. See this arrow going down? That's you. See that arrow going down? That's your kids. That arrow doesn't turn around. You are not to parent your parents. Your parents are to parent you and you parent your children and so on down. I, I remember not believing her and <laughs> thinking, if, no, if I don't do it, no one else will, right? Which is what we tell ourselves. But it was also freeing to know that it was not my job. Yeah, and that those feelings of dis- discomfort were reasonable. Right. Because I almost felt guilty, like, shouldn't I want to be their confidant? You know, what is wrong with me that I, I feel and really they squirmy? Picked me. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's the other aspect of this. Triangulation does a number on the other siblings. And I have talked to my sister about this. I, she has been so wounded by the fact that I was the go to, and why not her? And she thought there was something missing in her. Why didn't they come to her? And I, that has, that has been so painful. You are so blessed to have not had that responsibility. To have been a kid. Right? Yeah, a kiddo. I know. But it's connection and she misses the connection. Yeah. Yeah. So it definitely keeps me very sober with my own children Mm -hmm. to make sure that I'm the mom and that I let them be kids. And that is a warning to eights. We don't have any filter and we feel like no topic is taboo right? We're pretty comfortable, I think, talking to our kids about mature subject matter oh, and yeah. introducing I mature subject like, matter. I going with this? Because I don't, I don't feel like I talk to my kids about inappropriate things. I, I'm pretty guarded in front well, of my kids. Well, what's your definition of appropriate though? Wouldn't you say you talk to your kids about things before some of your other friends talk to their kids about things? No. Okay, I for I just, sure do. It just doesn't bother me to talk about it. When it comes up, it's like, sex? Let's talk about sex. Do you need, you know, protection? Whatever. Um, how you're going to treat women? All that stuff. I mean, we've had those conversations with our boys young. Uh, so yeah, I mean, maybe earlier than some. But on a day-to-day basis, I'm pretty guarded in front of my kids. And I think that's because my parents were in front of us. So while I took care of my mom after my dad and her split, when we were children, my mom and dad were their own team. And we didn't, we didn't get that involved. So in that us. was modeled in a healthy way for you. It was. My parents were very careful about what they said to us as kids. We, we didn't get no information. They didn't hide everything, but they were very careful about giving us age appropriate answers and not talking about what was going on in other homes and other people and families. And so, so yeah, I'm really at a deficit because I was told all the things at a very young age, which means that it feels normal. So I have to put in very conscious limits on myself 
because what was modeled was there's really nothing off the table. So it's interesting you say that limit because I'm finding I'm trying to balance the scale the other way because my daughter is now almost 15. She's at an age where she's trying she's trying to connect with me all the time. And I am so grateful for that because the next one's coming and I'm pretty sure it's not going the same way. I have to consciously let her in more because she's not little anymore and she can take more on. And yeah, so I'm working on that part, on the opposite end of telling her more. Well, we just learned a principle then, which is it's really worth looking backwards, figuring out what your parents' style was. Did they let you in and tell you too much? And then does that mean that you are then possibly at risk of doing that with your kids? So it's just something to think about. And on the flip side, let your kids in too, right? Because I think there can be, I've seen some of my friends who are so cut out from their parents that, yeah, they never felt like they had a relationship. And you can't just start a relationship when your kids are 20. It doesn't happen. Angie 5, you said, I wasn't particularly overtly bossy. I did lead things often and took initiative, but was mostly on a crusade not to leave people out, so was always including everyone. I was uber competitive in things I did, but I wasn't loud. Tons of energy, still do. My weakness, my family would most likely say, is cleaning my room. But in terms of personality, probably getting stuck on fair and not liking when things aren't. Pirate the girl, you said, bossy was a frequent accusation, strong-willed, my mom had to move some trinket that I refused to stop touching, even though she smacked my hand many times. I was four when my brother walked into a deep pond and disappeared, even though I was probably one of the youngest. Watching it happen, I was the one who ran for help. He would have drowned if I didn't. C. Fraser, you said, I was so proud of my independence, but also knew it was because I was afraid to ask for help, so I just learned how to behave like an adult. I always stuck up for the underdog. Well, until they made me vulnerable in high school. Then I only protected my friends. My family would describe me as funny, hard-headed, and smart. Maybe manipulative, too, if I'm honest. Bond Monster, you said, I refused to do anything I didn't want to do. My parents learned really quickly that they would not be able to force me to do anything. I refused to nap. I wouldn't play games at recess that the other kids were playing. If I didn't like it, I'd do something on my own. I believed that I could always get what I wanted, and I always figured out a way to do that. My mom would always try to tell me, you can't have your cake and eat it too, which I felt was a dumb phrase. I still do. I crafted a lot. I had no close friends and always felt like the other kids knew how to get along with each other better than me for some reason. I had no weaknesses, lol. Except maybe for having nightmares and refusing to sleep. I probably slept like three hours a night most of my childhood. Amanda McGoins, you said, I am the oldest of five with parents who were loving to us, but had a verbally abusive, chaotic marriage. I often found myself parenting everyone in the home. I was unafraid to step in the middle of a fight and admonish nonsense. I always spurned physical affection from my family, but would be the one that my siblings came to for advice when they needed anything. So I guess despite the fact that I wasn't a cuddler, I was the soft place to land, never judging their issues. I always came off as the strongest among peers, even without trying, and was often told through childhood and teen years and early adulthood that I was intimidating. Senorita Cortita, you said, I was very independent and an only child with an eight mother, so I was kind of quiet at home. I was bossy and a know-it-all with cousins and friends. I was a clean freak, still am, so I wouldn't even let people touch my bed. I never got into trouble, got good grades, but bragged about that fact to friends, which got me into trouble with them. I played basketball and was the smallest one, but they called me Scrapper because I did whatever I could to get that ball. 
but I also had my sweet side and I always took the outsiders under my wing. I still kind of do that in my 30s. And drapery goddess, you said, as a child, I had an iron will, but also a big heart. My rush to defend the underdog often got me in trouble with my peers. And I got the feeling many people didn't like me, though I didn't understand what I did to cause it. Now I think I didn't do anything, I just gave off a vibe. I was expected to behave a certain way, and displays of anger were not allowed. My mother would tell me, don't be ugly. I think my family would say I was stubborn, disorganized, what my mother calls an artistic temperament. I was often praised for my abilities, but criticized for my personality traits. My dad once told me, after I got in trouble for lending my beach raft to other kids, that I was too generous. How can you be too generous? It's Kane Kane, said, youngest of four kids. I've always had a style all my own. I dislike whatever is mainstream and popular. As a kid, I purposely would choose the opposite of whatever everyone else was choosing. I hated pink because every other girl loved pink. I chose orange instead. I always wanted to try new things. Never had a problem taking direction the first time, but if I already had been shown or told how to do it, I did not want someone to show or tell me again. I had to figure it out myself. I hated being babied. I saw myself as fully capable of accomplishing anything I put my mind to. If I couldn't figure something out, I would ask my mom to help because she was really good at just showing me the next step and not doing the whole thing for me. I loved obeying my parents as long as I wasn't being told what to do, so it really depended on their tone of voice. A lot of the time my dad would tell me what to do, and the second he turned around I was sticking my tongue out at him. I'd also roll my eyes a lot. Like, a lot. In stress, as a happy kid, I would deal with it by talking about it. As trauma occurred, I built walls and shut down. As an adult, I'm working on allowing God to break those last few walls down. So this leads really well into the next point, which is that eights often report that they grow up way too quickly. They felt that by showing vulnerability or softness, it would be more likely they'd be hurt or rejected or betrayed. So they became little protectors and they showed toughness and invulnerability. And um, they became the one that others would turn to for strength. In my case, even my parents. (laughs) And uh, the decisive person who could handle anything without flinching. They often become really tough some of them aggressive, and they tend to hide their hurts and vulnerabilities and anything that feels weak. I have the funniest story while you're telling (laughs) us. I just came back to me right now. When I was nine, I went to a New Kids on the Block concert, and I was in love with Jordan Knight. And I remember he walked by me, and when he walked by me, he did that little, like, you're so cute little wave to you, like you're a little girl. And I remember being so angry and thinking, you have no idea how mature I am. Like, I could totally date you. Why are you waving at me like that? <laughs> but I was nine and I was very grown up. But yeah, I, do, you rem- do you think you were old when you were little? I never felt little. I always felt like an adult. That's what we talked about before where um, some adults didn't handle that very well. Because I would meet their gaze in a level way and respond as if I were a peer. And that, that's weird. Like that's uncomfortable to them. Didn't you find you, you, you were able to pull on a rapport with some adults? Absolutely. I remember we had a principal in our grade school and we were in the Christian school at this time and he, it was grade eight and he was this really strict Dutch man and everybody was terrified of him except me. And I remember that he came into our classroom. One of the kids had thrown a snowball and hit a kid, a younger kid, and he went on a rampage. Like he kicked the garbage can from the front of the classroom to the back and was screaming at the top of his lungs. And all I remember is like, do not laugh, do not laugh. <laughs> and this little, little like, smirk came out of the corner of and he looked at me and I thought I was dead meat and he started to laugh and I was like yep yep 
but he, and he always had a soft spot for me after that like he was he could meet me on a different he was so sarcastic with me to a really crazy level but I always matched it right and I think he respected that yeah we had a really burly big cranky German man at church and we called him Uncle Bob and he didn't like kids like he did well he didn't like any other kids but he really liked me <laughs> because I, I would just call him on stuff like there was like nothing about him that intimidated me and of course he he really respected that so I get that totally but I <laughs> I have another legendary family story which is that um, we were kids who did get spanked every now and then and for me it was always to do with being mouthy and so my dad said that I actually had a choice I could either be spanked or have soap in my mouth and I looked at him and I'm like, soap, bring me the soap. There is no way you're putting me over your knee. Like, I am not a child. Like, absolutely not. You will not. And so I picked up the soap and just like out of pure, I don't know, spite or something, I took a, a full bite Ew. out of it. And I was <laughs> gagging and chewing and gagging uh. and tears were leaking out of my eyes. And my dad had to leave the room to weep because he thought this kid this kid, it would have been better if you'd gotten the spank. Like, this is so much worse. But my, my pride and all of that would never consent to a spanking when I had the choice to implement my own torture, right? Yeah, so that's pretty telling. It's because it's humiliating. Yeah. I remember... Oh, yeah, Roar. Yeah, he says... <laughs> he describes his nephew, who he's pretty sure is an eight. And he just said, there's like this thing about him that's like, you will never take me down a peg. And yeah, I totally relate to that. Eights are often said to be assertive and adventurous children, and I would agree. Um, it results in them getting punished frequently. And in order to defend their psyche from these frequent punishments, they decide to take on a to hell with them mindset and an attitude of indifference and steely resolve. The more they feel rejected, the more they'll harden their hearts. This is so interesting. See, I think that I was very fortunate growing up with a seven wing eight dad and a nine mom because I think they took delight in me most of the time. I mean, I certainly push things, but I don't think I was punished too frequently because they appreciated the pieces about me and therefore I didn't feel like I was in a box and never really pushed. Nope. Same as my parents. They thought I was pretty awesome. Um, I definitely did have this sideways comparison with my nine sister, though. The term that was always given to her is she's sweet. She's sweet. And I got no superlatives at all. Like there were there were no, <laughs> there was no comment about me. People from outside the family had a very clear idea about who was the sweet sister and who wasn't. So that's not punitive or anything. That was just observations. I think that I, I was the one, though, that was picked as the favorite. I know I had one aunt who, who wanted to just dote on me and used to take me out and then um my uncle and my dad's stepdad like there were three adults in our core family that that really picked me and there's 18 grandkids um i have this story about church camp which is always <laughs> fraught with peril church. yes my goodness but i was wearing the same tank top as another girl but I can was all see where this story is going <laughs> yeah i was built athletically but i also carried myself like with confidence, like an adult, right? And the other girl was the pastor's daughter. And I got pulled aside and told that I was dressed inappropriately. And that you needed to go put more clothes on. Yeah, exactly. And it was just so clear. I was literally looking across 
the yard at the exact same tank top on the exact same girl and similar shorts, but I was the one being called out. And um, I acknowledge that I wore it differently, fine, but I also just think it was a way of wearing it. There's a way of being in the world where we, um, I think we're noticed, you know, you can't not notice us because there's, there's a, we are very present. I was just going to say, it's the way we carry ourselves, like you said, and we're, there's a confidence piece where people are like, oh, even if we don't feel it, we fake it, or it's just our persona, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So they were always going to notice it on me uh, more than they'd notice it on her. So I'm the one who got called out. And now I wish we could go back and give them a talk about this. <laughs> For sure. I would like, maybe they're the problem. <laughs> Agreed. Um, that definitely is in line with feeling like you're the one who's punished or pinpointed more than it's. I also think it's because we'll say the things like when we're in a, a group setting, right? Where we're usually going to be the people that are going to say the hard things. So they don't attack everybody there who's present and also supporting that cause. They're going to go after us who spoke. Yes, like the, that's why I named that episode, My Ego Isn't Bigger Than Yours, It's Just Louder. Of course, if you put everything externally on the outside and you say all of it and show all of it, then you're going to be targeted because it's there to target. Um, so I just think that's very common. When we sin, we sin boldly. <laughs> we sin loudly. And, uh, and so, of course, that's going to be called out. So Palmer also talks about that or eights do expect to be disadvantaged and that we learn to protect ourselves by becoming exquisitely sensitized to the negative intentions of others. How do you feel about that? Uh, do I notice if people don't like me? In a second. I, I know immediately whether someone likes me or doesn't like me or is indifferent to me immediately. Do you notice it before the good stuff? Always. Yeah. It's the first thing that comes <laughs> forward. So I often change my mind later on people because I make the same opinions back. If, you, if I feel you're negative or you're not sure about me, I immediately don't like you and don't trust you for like five minutes. I just need something else from that person to give me my confidence in why I like them back again. I'm going to trace this back to our brain function. The brainstem is about survival, which means, of course, we're attuned to the negative first. That's how you survive. That's why wild animals completely are going to sniff out their prey really quick and and do what needs doing, right? So we are built to react really quickly, really, really quickly. And then we adjust later. Give us a little time. We, We make adjustments later, but our first is always going to be a defensive guarded, survival-based instinct. I wrestle with this because I sometimes confuse that fight-or-flight response with a gut feeling. And so I'll assume I don't like them because there's something, my gut's saying, no, no, but it's not that. And like I said, five minutes later, they do or say something and I'm so endeared to them. Yeah, overall, I'd say let's treat that gut reaction as a gift overall because it can save our life and it can save other people's lives, but we have to question it. Yeah, sure. absolutely have yep. to question it. And I think maturity is that the gap between the first instinct and a more well-rounded view on it gets narrower, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't take as long to reformulate what actually is true. So I would say look for that in yourself. It would be a sign of maturity for sure. So yeah, um, like you, I think it's a sense of hiddenness that I really can feel attuned to in people. So I know how present they are and how much they're giving me of themselves. That seems to be a superpower I have. And I actually wrote something about this. So um, I'll link to it. I, I have a really, I think, a blog with like eight posts on it. Classic me, like getting all into it and then abandoning it. But um, I'll just read it 
here because I think some of you might resonate. So I, I called the post Hidden Things. I seem to be a barometer for hidden things. Looking into your face, if you're offering me 63% of yourself, I will feel every one of the 37 percentage points that you're holding back. I don't know why a third of you isn't showing up. I won't know whether it's something I've done or whether you're always only two-thirds present in the world. I'll only know that I don't get all of you, only a part, and I will not like it. I want to be around people who show up in the 90th percentile. Discovering them is one of my favorite things in the world. When someone is wearing themselves comfortably, I can feel myself relaxing the perimeter walls I use to rein myself in. I figure that if your feet are firmly planted, then I won't unintentionally push you over. I figure a person who's confident I can hold all of them will at least try to hold all of me. After 40 years of full body scanning, I've come to expect mostly hidden people, not open ones. On my bad days, I blame myself. I assume that it's me that you're hiding from, and I'm frustrated with you for not giving me a chance. On my good days, it's like I can sense the long, complicated stories under your skin. The unnamed hurts and wars you've fought that taught you to hide in the first place. So I can give you room, but not for long. If you stay long enough, if you let me, I have a compulsion to press into the dark, a knack for unearthing buried things. There's never been a dug-up truth that I can't hold without fear, without disgust, without blame. I think that's because I know, have always known, that while I've also tried to bury many, many things over the years, every ugly thing brought to light loses its power, opens us up to the air and to the sun. I think eights are good at that. I really do think so. So we can sense people's hidden things and we won't know precisely what or why, but I think we're a safe place for people if they give us time to actually start to open up and let us hold some of those things. I think we're a safe place for people that are willing to be vulnerable. If you're not willing to be vulnerable, we're not a safe place because we're going to push you. I also was looking um, when you said um, when someone's wearing themselves comfortably, like you can you can settle in with them. And then the confidence piece, like I don't love overconfident people, but I like people that are confident in themselves, right? Yeah, so, I look for inner integrity. Yeah. So I can feel whether their insides match their outside. And I don't have enough information to, to do it well all the time. I just have a sense for whether somebody is fully themselves with me. And I really value it when they are, because to me, it means that they think I'm safe. And the sad piece is then how come I don't feel comfortable giving them all of me? Interestingly, though, going back, if people wouldn't open up to you, do you think you'd just say, you're not worth my time and walk away? All the time. We, we hear that all the time in eight stuff too, right? Whereas I think we're a little more compassionate now as we're getting older and we're, we're understanding other people's stories don't need to match ours. And we're learning that just because someone doesn't want to open up to us doesn't mean we're not safe people. They have their own story going on. And it doesn't mean they're not worth right. bothering with. Yeah. Or, or just being where they need. Why does everybody have to meet us at where we're at? I think sometimes we need to be really conscious that we need to meet other people's needs and be where they're at. And that can be uncomfortable for us and so be it. So yeah, it means if they want to hold back 37% of themselves, fine. Yeah. And not fuck you and walk away. Sorry. We're... Go ahead. Keep the 37%. <laughs> of yeah. yourself if and that's if you what makes you feel safe. And if you ever want to talk safe. more, I'm here. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. 
And, and we do see it. We hear it on the on the Instagram account, right? People say, if you're not in, I'm out and screw you. I'm done with you forever, right? And I, I do think that's our natural instinct, but that is us protecting our vulnerability and being hurt again. But anyway, I think we as eights can do a better job than what the books say we do. <laughs> and we can we can give people space to have space. All right. Not Beatrice, your favorite person. <laughs> I had a dream about her last night. <laughs> I showed up at an office and she was the secretary at the desk. <laughs> and I was like, oh crap. She's, she knows all the bad things I said about her. <laughs> Funny. Especially because I'm more likely to be the secretary at her office in reality <laughs> instead of her at mine. Okay, so she said that because eights have an early need to feel powerful and so learn to deny their vulnerability, they often feel that they can make their own rules and ignore limitations that others place on them. They tend to see reality in their own terms, unconsciously bending their perception of facts and confusing objective reality with their own personal sense of what's true. Can we stop and unpack that yeah. before we continue on this monstrous sure. quote? Yeah. Oh, I hate this. I know. I hated it when I read it. I hate it. This is not true. I do bend my own rules and I ignore limitations. When the rules don't make sense or we're going to benefit somebody, when the whole system is making a rule for the sake of a rule or for that 2% that don't obey the rules or that blow things out of the water so we all have to be honed in on, I don't buy it. And it's not because I think I'm better than someone else or that they don't apply to me. I just, my gut has been wrong enough times that I am starting to question whether or not I really am trying to shape reality into my own Oh, I think we do at times. Thing. Are you now saying you agree with Beatrice? No, I'm, I don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing the devil's advocate? Maybe I am. Um, I, I'm just starting to ask myself more questions because a friend of mine said the same thing. She said, I know you think you're a realist. She kind of left it dangling. I was like, uh... She's like, it doesn't mean that you always do see the truth or that your view on that is reality. You just have a really body sense of what's true and right, but it doesn't mean it is. Do you think you would ever ignore rules that would put someone else in harm's way? Here's the problem. No, if I knew that someone was going to be in harm's way and that was at the front of my mind, I wouldn't, but I don't even think about it sometimes because I am fearless. So that's the problem is I will very much break a rule, but I won't stop to consider whether or not someone will be harmed. Absolutely not would I do it on purpose if I knew someone was going to be harmed. It's that I often don't pause to consider. What I'm saying is that if the reality I live in is one without a whole lot of fear and I live accordingly, then I make a bunch of decisions that kind of assume the fearlessness of other people or don't take into account their experiences. And I think I agree with you. I think that we need to be careful and we need to hone in. I also think it's our superpower that we can do it without feeling because when the rules are not for the better of people or a person and we can support and help that person, sometimes we're the only person who can do that. And sometimes we're the only person who can show up. I think we need to be careful because like you said, we can bowl people over without seeing it because we don't feel it, the fear or the, the thinking process. Yes, because the rest, the next sentence says, the stance goes with having a strong will and a tendency to view ourselves as the most powerful people around. We make automatic assumptions that the way we see things is the only way things can be seen. I, don't, I disagree with that. I know there's other Pre ways. Pre-Enneagram? Yeah, I know people have other views than me. I'm okay with that. I'm That's acceptable? People having other views? Yes. 
yeah i do think i appreciate other people's views and and i think this must be where i push into my two because i hear that a lot from people a lot of my friends will say things to me when i'm trying to give them a different point of view of the other person and they'll say you have way too much compassion or you're too nice i hear that a lot yeah i mean on that recording kathy said joe did what joe wanted to do and i definitely struggle with that in the sense that I'm self-oriented. And so I very much do push into on my path in a way that feels very important, like very important. Or is it just that you're doing what you're going to do? Because I do what I'm going to do without really thinking sideways. It's the ignore limitations. That's the part of this quote I really resonate with. Stupid limitations. I, I do very much ignore limitations. <laughs> For me, it's not a willful breaking of rules just to break it and to exert autonomy. It's that they can't contain me is what it feels like. And so I'm bigger and more expansive than that rule will hold or something. And I will spill out of it if it doesn't suit me. <laughs> so there is a sense of um, they do talk about eights being expansive or something like we press into territory and whatnot. And I relate to that in a sense because... If ever a rule is broken on my part, I almost don't even really register it was a rule. I'm just busy moving forward into. So I think we just work through logic, right? It's feeling, feeling and logic. And it's, we're not considering all the things. We're just moving forward in what makes logical sense to us in that moment without considering the stuff around us. There's also this deep-seated curiosity and confidence in my body. So I used to, um, there were train tracks with an active train on them near my house, but it was so alluring to climb over the fence, past the signs and explore there. I and have so many photos on that bridge. All the time. <laughs> yes. And it, it was um, a rule that I was breaking, but I couldn't contain myself. I had to explore. And it felt really important that I do that to be me or something. And I did the same thing in elementary. Our school had a whole bunch of, it was a really old building with these secret passages. There was like connecting passages and I knew they were there. Of course I did. I have like a radar for these things. And I would wait till the janitor wasn't looking and I would lead another friend into the rooms and we'd explore and yeah these were rule breaking that that involved um, no harm to someone else but um, a sense that the rule didn't apply because I couldn't contain myself <laughs> I absolutely had to explore I, see, and then I would I would just reframe it as not a rule it's just a suggested don't do that <laughs> right <laughs> sure see do you see though what's happening here I think we might in fact be proving the point a little bit So Palmer would say that eights commonly describe themselves as um, trying to be good at first when they were young, like genuinely wanting to please. And then that they feel like their innocence was taken advantage of or that they were hurt. And then they begin to push back in self-defense and quickly found that it was more fun to break the rules than try to keep them. So more Do we fun. Have a choice? Yeah, I don't. It's not I, a matter. I think, of, like you said, it's it's part of our being. Like it's like you can't you can't contain yourself. So I don't I don't see that as a choice to break the rules. I don't choose consciously. I, I don't. But do we think anything through? I, I don't know if there's another type that is so intensely aware of their own self and their own wants and their own needs, and they've got all the resources to go for it, to like storm the walls and go for it. And so there are casualties. There are casualties if we don't pause. 
There really, really are. And so I would say if ever eights break rules, I would say a good portion of the time, it's because we only have our sights fixed on this lusty driving desire to pursue this want or need. In ending, we just want to encourage you to look back just for a little while, just for get it over with. Just look back, check out your childhood, check out each parent, your siblings, the ways that perhaps your community shaped you. And um, it's really not about blaming. It's really about seeing it, naming it. it. It's going to hurt. Yeah, for sure. And then Confront where confrontation is needed. So I did go and I approached my dad and I told him about this new concept I heard called triangulation. And it was a terrible conversation. But I had to ask him, did he see it? Dad, did you see this thing that you did? And he cried with me and said, I did do that to you. I did. And it didn't occur to him to even know that that was an issue until... I named it, right? So often we don't even know a thing is an issue until it's named. So that's what this is about. And you may not all get redemption from that, right? You're probably going to have people that will push back. You're very, your dad is an incredible man who loves you deeply. And he's very, he can be self-aware. He's willing to be self-aware. A lot of people aren't. And so you may not get that from someone and that's okay too. This isn't about their journey. It's about your journey, right? And I really think that part of this process is just, going backwards we don't like you said earlier we don't go backwards we go forwards and I think if we're going to go forward well we need to go backwards and see why we do what we do that's the whole point of the Enneagram as far as I'm concerned is why we do what we do and then modifying that to be better in this world with everybody else yeah and I think a lot of us do need to go look at the little girl we were again and have compassion on them, right? Get to know them Well, it's a big thing they do in therapy, right? It's a big going back and putting yourself in those shoes and and doing it differently in your mind so that you can heal from wounds. And Personally, I for sure used to rewrite my history in my head of who I was. And I I had definitely convinced myself I was a prickly weirdo. And it was my mom. It was my mom who said... Go pull out your old diaries. Go read yourself again. You are not seeing yourself right. And then when I did, I was I was so fond of the girl that I read in there. I I had rewritten my narrative in an unhelpful way. But you way. know what? It also shows that in this world, any one group of people, and for you it was the church, they changed who you were in your head. They made a story and a dialogue about you that was not right and it wasn't real and it wasn't true. And we have to be careful that we don't believe those either. As eights, we're not gentle with ourselves. We think we are because we put ourselves first. We are not. And we'll go there, but this kind of ties into that. So yeah, it sure does. All right. There's a little, little bit of a heavier one. Next one's We say that all the time. (laughs) My goodness. We don't know how to not be heavy. We're just going to the, we figure if you're still with us and after we get through the really hard stuff, then we've got you. So (laughs) we're going to shock you whenever it's light and bright. So, so stay tuned for that. And we will talk to you guys um, next episode. Take care. Bye. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor.